Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Gastola, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania. Oh, hi. Hello, Kevin. I was waiting for the hey, Rania. It's okay. It's okay. No, no. Usually, I prompt you, and it's much more <laughs> fluid. So then uh, our guest is Brinko Marsatich, who is a staff writer at Jacobin. He's also the author of Yesterday's Man, a book on Joe Biden. Uh, basically looked at his rise and uh, his presidential campaign, and it's really great to have you back on the show, Branko. Hello. Yeah, yeah, great to be back. All right, so uh, before we get to it, I thought I'd just set up what we're we're going to talk about here. We have a range of topics, mostly uh, foreign policy related for the beginning of our show. But I'd like to put up on the screen here this uh, this sort of slide I presentation I guess I put together because it really illustrates we're going to talk about the Russia and Ukraine crisis so to speak but honestly it's entirely manufactured it doesn't really seem that anything's happening but what was remarkable about the past week was how for example the New York Times continues to push this or or, or prop up this made-believe threat of a Russia invasion. And these headlines are, are I was going to see what your reaction to this is, Branko. So for the New York Times is the prime example. This is, you've got, uh, with buildup on land and sea, Russia closes in, uh, Russian troops in final stages of readiness add to worries for Ukraine. And then Putin is operating on his own timetable, and it may be a long one. Uh, and these are just some of the most ridiculous ways of trying to squeeze drama out of something that clearly is losing any sort of tension whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, we've been hearing about there's an imminent invasion. Imminent obviously means it could happen at any time. Uh, you know, it could, it could happen tomorrow. Uh, it could happen in a week. We've been hearing that since, I would say, November. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that, that uh, Russia putting troops on the border isn't isn't threatening, or that there you know there isn't something to be concerned about. Certainly, but uh, clearly the, the the idea that Putin is just waiting to to invade any day is is not really correct. And and actually, you're right. The New York Times and really the entirety of the of U.S. media and British media are pretty out of step with uh, basically what the rest of the world is saying, including in Ukraine. Uh, back in I think it was January. Uh, the Ukrainian president, and not just the president, but the, the foreign minister, the defense minister, uh, it's one of its leading national security figures, others, uh, they all said basically, they started walking away from uh, Joe Biden's rhetoric and, and the British rhetoric on this and saying, well, actually, no, we don't think that an invasion is going to come you know, any second now. Uh, this has been kind of going on for a while. Uh, and, and we're always in the threat, but no, the, we don't have any signs of invasion. Please don't panic. Uh, and that's basically the opinion that was shared by, by German intelligence. It was the opinion of the French government, of, of uh, the, the EU, which was kind of slightly puzzled by why the U.S. would uh, evacuate its embassies in Ukraine. So, you know, I think it's important for anyone listening to this who, who you know, may, maybe comes from a, a Western country, um, to, to understand that the British and the, the US uh, media coverage of this is kind of an outlier um, and is not really reflective of uh, objective reality. If anything, it's more reflective of what those particular political establishments want people to think, which, of course, you know, they have an easy way to, to uh, feed a narrative to the public through the media. So I think that's a really important note of caution. And again, I'm, I'm going I'm to repeat that certainly that. Yeah, it's, it is a little bit threatening for Russia to have these troops on the border, but it, it's important to discern between what's merely kind of threatening and what's actually uh, an imminent uh, invasion and war. Yeah, I mean, that's like a really diplomatic way of saying that the U.S. and the British governments are completely batshit crazy. Like, it's actually, it's so... It's so insane the last month of the coverage because it's actually like the Western media itself is even more hawkish, at least in the American case, than the American leadership is. Like, I remember, I don't think, I think it was like a couple weeks ago when Biden said something like, well, if it was a small invasion, we wouldn't do anything about it. I, I don't remember the exact words, but either way, whatever he said was like kind of walking back all these U.S. threats, at least a little bit. And the media went totally nuts. Like, what do you think that's about? The fact that it's like they did the same thing with Afghanistan. It's as if 
the U.S. media is like working directly for weapons manufacturers or something as like a check on any president who might accidentally be a slightly less hawkish than they like. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I actually I wrote this this op-ed for the Washington Post because at the time it, it kind of seemed like Biden was was more of the, the same voice in the room because, you know, the, earlier last year, Similarly, uh, at a a press conference, uh, the press corps had really pushed him basically to be more aggressive against Putin. And he was kind of taking a more conciliatory, uh, kind of moderate line and and kind of uh, 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 waving away or kind of parrying some of these these media demands. And it kind of looked like that was what was going to happen this time where uh, you're right. Biden mentioned, uh, you know, maybe let slip is, is the more accurate word <laughs> at this press conference that if it's a, if, you, if Putin does a minor incursion, well, we'll see because, you know, then we're going to have some differences on how to respond. Essentially uh, saying that that the U.S. really was not, uh, did not have much of an appetite to, to really intervene uh, if Putin really, you know, did something, uh, well, whatever, whatever you want to find a minor incursion as. Um, uh, why it is that the U.S. media is so much, so, so much more hawkish than, than even seemingly the president was at one time, um, I, I would guess, this is, this is my theory, I think obviously a lot of people in the media, uh, liberal, uh, I think we would probably be able to say that they vote democratic or that they lean democratic uh, on the whole. Um, and there has been a, a real dramatic shift uh, on terms of national security and in foreign policy. Uh, among the liberal and democratic voting parts of the public since 2016, um, where a lot of the media kind of their takeaway from from that election was a that they were wrong to do their jobs. They should not have reported on the the, the various emails that were released from the DNC and from the Clinton campaign because that ended up putting Trump in power. Uh, that's that was their reasoning. I want to be clear. That's sort of the takeaway they took from that. And number two, uh, that that Russia kind of was this really dangerous um, uh, 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 world power, this 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 enemy that had to be confronted, um, you know, because after all, Putin was the one who put Trump in power uh, uh, in their formulation. Uh, you know, Putin was kind of trying to sow discord in the United States by, by elevating far-right figures like Trump and others. And so I think now there's this really frankly, unhinged uh, uh, approach uh, or attitude among the U.S. media where, where there's constantly um, more and more push from, from, from the press to, to be more confrontational towards Russia and, and this idea that, that, you know, the only way you can meet Putin, you cannot do it through appeasement. Uh, you have to uh, uh, kind of con- confront him and, and stand up to him and, and that kind of thing. And, and that, that obviously has a lot of uh, scary implications for foreign policy. Um, you know, I, I, and I think it's also misreading of, of the situation and misreading of history. Putin's obviously not someone who cares for liberal norms or, or you know, uh, international law. We all know that. Um, however, I also think his his uh, motivations and his intentions here are driven more out of uh, actual genuine security concerns, legitimate security concerns for Russia than some sort of kind of Hitler 2.0 style uh, expansion. Um, but, you know, maybe we, we can maybe go into that a little more. Yeah, I know you've been looking uh, and even going back to earlier developments in U.S. foreign policy towards Ukraine operations. Uh, the CIA has backed groups in Ukraine that are uh, groups that are involved in neo-Nazi organizing. Moderate. And, they're moderate neo-Nazis. <laughs> and, and, you know, we've even seen within like think tanks that let somehow like hate speech to call out these Ukraines and say they're, they're Nazis and that that's, that we are uh, smearing and slandering them. But, you know, groups like the Azov Battalion and uh, others that are there, um, we know are fighting this uh, conflict in a very concentrated area that has been protracted. I know Rania has more that she could add, having done a lot of extensive coverage through Breakthrough News. Uh, but this, is, this has gone on. Another point that is seemingly lost in a lot of this discussion, uh, besides the fact that the CIA has funded paramilitary groups that could possibly pose a threat to Russia by making incursions into Russia if they wanted to provoke a, a wider war, um, is the fact that there is a lot of division within Ukraine over NATO and whether the these 
European forces and U.S. forces that are within NATO should be or are aligned with NATO should be moving uh, closer and closer to Russia, should maybe take up a, a post in Ukraine, division over whether Ukraine should be a NATO country because of what it would mean for the security of people in Ukraine. Uh, there's 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 a divide. There's people who are very pro-Russia in Ukraine. There's people who are anti-Russia in Ukraine. It The division might be familiar to a lot of people because it's probably a lot like the partisanship in the United States where there are a lot of issues that are extremely polarizing. Uh, and, and yet there is no respect for what Ukrainians think about NATO in the coverage of any of this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an enormously complicated situation. Uh, you know, people occasionally ask me to explain to them what's going on in Ukraine and, and why the standoff that's that's happening is happening. And I always, always kind of tell them, well, you know, you, you have to kind of go back to, to 1991 and before the Soviet Union, uh, which which isn't exactly a convenient uh, thing if you want to just give people kind of a, a, a soundbite or an elevator pitch. But but unfortunately, it's true. I mean, you know, maybe more immediately we can say that that the cause uh, of, of the current standoff was the 2014 uh, revolution, the Maidan revolution in Ukraine, which basically, uh, you know, some would say revolution, others would say it was a, a coup or an insurrection. Um, I would say that, the, I mean, fine line between insurrection and revolution anyway, uh, but I would say, you know, this is much closer to the thing that people feared January 6th was going to be in the United States, um, what happened in Ukraine. It basically toppled this uh, authoritarian and very corrupt president, um, uh, 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 Yanukovych, uh, in Ukraine, uh, who kind of has this reputation as being pro-Russian. He, he's not really. I mean, he was kind of charting a course between the West and, and Russia. Didn't obviously want to want to anger Russia, which is right right on his doorstep, and uh, Ukraine does a lot of trade with. But at the same time, was still kind of going ahead with plans to move Ukraine to the west. Um, this this revolution, coup, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, uh, toppled him through through a threat of violence. Essentially, he 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 flew Ukraine, um, put into place this this uh, post Maidan government, which unfortunately didn't solve any of the issues um that 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 people in ukraine were actually angry about in the first place it didn't solve the corruption or authoritarianism but it did put in an oligarch into power who um you know continued to move ukraine closer to the west um and at the same time it also succeeded in bringing um into into government um and into actually uh, law enforcement positions and, and into the armed forces uh neo-nazis and, and other members of the far right uh, and you mentioned Azov. That's that's one of them. Uh, Azov, which is a neo-Nazi militia that was fighting uh, Russian separatists, <clears throat> excuse me, in eastern Ukraine, uh, they were brought into the National Guard. Uh, you know, I mean, a law enforcement body, a government body. I mean, imagine, imagine that. Uh, and and they've received military training and weapons from the West ever since then. Because if 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 you know, training and, and weapons is, is going to send, get sent to Ukraine, it's going to end up in the hands of, of people who are in these uh, kind of in, in this hierarchy. Um, now, that's sort of the immediate uh, uh, issue, you know, and that's that's also why Russia ended up uh, annexing Crimea, which is a, a majority Russian uh, part of Ukraine. Basically, Moscow was, was worried that uh, the NATO base uh, sorry, the, the the naval base in uh, Crimea was going to end up in NATO hands now that this uh, this kind of far right led revolution had happened, and so they did this thing where they just basically annexed the country and kind of justified it based on this kind of flimsy uh, uh, referendum. Uh, so that that's the immediate uh, cause. If we really want to go back though, as you mentioned, a, a lot of this is really about NATO and it's about Ukraine's place in Europe, and that goes back to this promise that was made at the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, a, a verbal promise that was made by by both the Bush administrations and later the uh, the Clinton administration, uh, and they told uh, the Russians basically uh, we're not going to move NATO eastward. Of course, NATO technically had no reason to really exist anymore because the Soviet Union was gone, the Cold War was over. So why have this hostile anti-Soviet military alliance? Um, unfortunately, that did not happen uh, in the 90s, uh, led by Joe Biden, in fact. That's one of the things that people, uh, I think, forget. We're, we're kind of in this position now because, <laughs> as with so many things in contemporary US politics, <laughs> because of a terrible decision made by Joe Biden, he pushed for the expansion of NATO eastward. 
in the mid-90s. The Russians vehemently objected, but Russia was too weak to do anything about it. And Washington basically said, sure, 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 okay, we, we, we hear you. And they just did it anyway. And they've kind of continued doing that. Um, in 2008, there's actually a diplomatic cable that, that thanks to, to Julian Assange uh, we, and, and, and Chelsea Manning, we have our hands on. Um, in February 2008, the current Russian foreign minister bringing up to uh, the US basically saying, listen, if NATO expands into Georgia and Ukraine, we see this as a military provocation. This has serious security implications. Of course, countries uh, have the right to do what they want and, and all of that, but also you have to be cognizant of our concerns as, as, a, as, a, you know, as a power in this region. Um, and then George Bush immediately disregarded that and, and announced later that year that, yes, Ukraine, they were going to push ahead with moving Ukraine into NATO. And so I, that, that's, I, I think, what is happening now, what Putin is doing now. Um, I, I absolutely think that you know, if it came down to it, he would invade if he had to. Um, if he felt like that was the only way that he was going to kind of guarantee some sort of buffer between him and the West and, and NATO. Um, but I think basically this is an attempt by him to say, okay, well, we, we've asked nicely for decades now over several different uh, leaders and it hasn't worked. So now we are going to, you know, put our cards on the table and say, okay, if, if, if you do not listen to our security concerns, we are going to do something pretty drastic. Um, and, and they brought them to the negotiating table. I guess now it depends on is the U.S. going to uh, recognize that there is actually a legitimate security concern uh, by Russia here and that maybe NATO's expansion has to be limited. There has to be some sort of war to it. Um, I don't know, but I, I hope that that is where it's going to settle because if it doesn't, uh, a war would not be a very pretty thing for anyone, not the U.S., not Ukraine, not Russia. Yeah, it kind of seems like um, I keep thinking to myself every week, OK, this is going to be the last week. There's not going to be a war like nobody actually wants a war. But at the same time, it's so dangerous because under Trump, so many of the treaties that exist between the U.S. and Russia that actually exist to act as like back channels to preventing any sort of war were ripped up. So a lot of the kinds of things that were in place to prevent a war aren't there anymore, which is what makes this so much more dangerous uh, than before. And then of course the U S is complete unwillingness to recognize that Russia does have like real security concerns that any country would, if they had to deal with something like NATO surrounding them, which is completely like about surrounding Russia and preventing it from like, from like having any any control over its own security or being a powerful country in any way whatsoever but beyond that so sort of security threat that russia faces i mean ukraine you know i don't think it's an exaggeration to say that ukraine presents and you've written about this presents a threat around the world in many ways because it's become this kind of rallying cry for people in the global far right some of which who have actually gone to train in ukraine including including Americans, like far-right Americans. Can you talk a little bit about that particular threat and how the U.S.'s uh, role in Ukraine has actually made the threat of the far-right globally more dangerous? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the absurdities of this entire thing. Uh, we're, we're told on the one hand, you know, this is about defending liberal democracy. We're told that, well, actually, Putin is, is Hitler. He's a new Hitler. And so that's why we're doing this. And then we're told also in the domestic sphere by, by Joe Biden and, and Democrats and other officials that the the, the most uh, alarming threat right now uh, uh, to, to people's lives is not, you know, continued inequality and corporate exploitation of people. But no, it's, it's far right terrorism. And we have to expand the domestic security state. Uh, uh, further give, grant new powers, you know, uh, perhaps even a domestic terrorism law so that we can take on this threat. Meanwhile, uh, for the past, you know, uh, what, eight years, uh, and particularly now, the U.S. has been sending weapons and military, other military aid. It's been training uh, people in Ukraine, uh, the armed forces and others, uh, to basically fight a, a uh, anti-Russian insurgency should an invasion come. And what that means is that uh, this military training and these weapons and, and equipment has gone to the hands of uh, far-right extremists like Azov, like other militias. You know, in, in Ukrainian law enforcement, there's actually quite a few 
different far-right figures who have managed to get themselves into the hierarchy. Uh, so it, it, as a result, Ukraine's become this kind of mecca for uh, the global far-right, uh, you know, people who basically want to uh, do the kinds of things, in, really do the kinds of things that, that maybe those people in Michigan uh, were sort of uh, led into doing by the FBI. Uh, they go to Ukraine, they, they, they communicate with Azov, they meet with them, they train with them. Uh, and then they go back to the United States. And that's happened with several Americans. There was actually one uh, one guy who went to Ukraine, um, did that, came back. Um, and then uh, he and and, and uh, a friend uh, killed this, this couple in Florida and robbed them so they could get the money to go to Venezuela, where they were planning to do some sort of coup or something. So, you know, so uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that these people are actually going to be able to, to, to do, you know, achieve their wildest dreams. But clearly, if there are unhinged, mentally unbalanced, violent people who, who see their uh, life's goal as, as kind of uh, spreading the violent far-right chaos, uh, the fact that they have this kind of avenue to at least do some sort of damage um, is very worrying. And, and I mean, this is not just me talking. This is There was a, a report put out by uh, West Point um, in 2020 that talked about how uh, extremists in Europe and the US were going to Ukraine um, to, to get training and to get advice and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the, the kind of scary thing to think about is right now, you know, uh, uh, the, the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, his biggest concern right now is, is not a, a Russian invasion. His biggest concern is that he might be toppled in a coup, that basically another Maidan revolution uh, like in 2014 will happen uh, because the the far right has it, it, ever since that revolution used street violence to to push politics in its preferred direction to rebel against certain things that it's, that, that it defines as as capitulation one of which is the the Minsk Accords that were signed that was as a sort of solution to this conflict they see that as a surrender to to Russia and they've taken you know they they've they've carried out violence uh, against the government. Um, in rebellion to this. And, you know, I mean, who knows what the chances are of that happening, but it is scary to think about what happens if suddenly in Ukraine, you get a, a government toppled by the far right and whatever comes next. And now you have this, this government you know, potentially controlled by people who are A, not only violent extremists, but B, see their causes fighting a war with Russia right next door. Think about how that would inflame the situation. And then also think about the fact that Ukraine, by virtue of its position, is not just right next to Russia, but it's right next to the rest of Europe. And what that means if there's, you know, consider how in Libya, when uh, uh, that government was toppled, how just the flood of, of weapons from that country uh, and from other countries using Libya as a conduit went you know, further uh, westward into Africa and it, it caused the, uh, the, the, the trouble in Mali. Um, I mean, you know, it doesn't bear thinking about if you're in a European country, uh, what it means for a, a, a suddenly a, a, a government to be toppled and suddenly, you know, the far right to have all these weapons and very easy kind of movement uh, into the West. So it's a really combustible situation um, that I think people, if people understood it as, as, as what it is, that it has this implication for far right terrorism in both Europe and the United States, I think the response to it in the United States would be very different. But unfortunately, people don't really hear that uh, at all in, in the U.S. media. Mm -hmm. Well, let's broaden out just a bit and talk about Joe Biden's foreign policy in general and where you see this all fitting into what he's done and continued on the part of President Donald Trump's administration uh, and also probably even reaching back into President Barack Obama's administration because he was, of course, vice president to Barack Obama, and I'll go ahead and uh, I'll read a little bit of what you wrote. And uh, when we when we share this, people will see uh, the headline in this article because you did do uh, a reflection on the uh, one year anniversary of Joe Biden and all the change that he promised, which we didn't get. And one of the things that you talked about or, or, or went into extensively was how little foreign policy had changed. Uh, looking at the noting the blockade on Cuba that has continued, which Trump intensified, uh, the deadly sanctions on Venezuela uh, that were starving the people of Afghanistan right now, just in order to be spiteful towards the Taliban. Uh, Biden's 
uh, also continued to be friendly with autocrats, um, broke his promise to punish the Saudi crown prince. And then, of course, we've seen very vividly over the last weeks what is going on with the genocidal war in Yemen and how empty those promises were, those pledges were about uh, curtailing the support that the U.S. gives and provides for, for that war, which is really, you know, obviously um, a quasi-proxy war between Saudi Arabia and, and Saudi Arabia thinks they're countering Iran. It's been, I've seen a lot of debate over how much the Houthis are actually supported by Iran, but um, definitely there are some links. But he's allowed this genocide to go on, a country that has severe famine and allowed this to this carnage to basically continue. Yeah, I mean, it's been a profound disappointment is the only thing I can say. I wasn't expecting a whole lot from Joe Biden, but I thought maybe a return to the kind of Obama era cautious centrist uh foreign policy where basically a, a few things get better and everything else stays just as bad as it was um but actually really biden's just continued the trump program almost completely um uh, you mentioned some of the, the highlights there i mean the afghanistan thing in particular is just absolutely i i don't have words for how reprehensible the the, the biden administration's policy there is I, for a while i was looking at afghanistan as as Kind of the best thing he he did in his administration aside from that initial stimulus bill stabilizing the economy and, and getting money into people's hands um but but i mean ever since things basically just just tried everything he can to undo any of the good that that withdrawal did because the the suffering he's imposed on on ordinary afghanistan people was uh, uh much worse uh than, than the war was which is saying something because the war was, was horrific as i'm sure you guys know um and and the latest news now I, I saw this morning is that that now the reason why this why this humanitarian catastrophe is happening in afghanistan is that, that the administration to, to punish the taliban as you say seized um or froze the uh the, the the afghan foreign reserves which are held in the united states and now the Biden administration is saying well we're just going you know we're going to take that we're going to halve that we're going to take half for ourselves and give it to the uh, 9-11 families uh who were not none of which were killed by any people in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, those were, those were mostly oh, Saudis. So and so then the, it, it's absolutely insane. I mean, literally stealing uh, <laughs> a, a foreign uh, money, just, just Robert. Um, and I mean, that's just one thing. The Cuba thing is another completely. It doesn't even, from a liberal standpoint, it doesn't even make sense as good policy. We, we have already seen how if you want to create uh, an opening up uh for, for cuban freedom um you know for the civil liberties and some of those political freedoms that, that have been denied for so long the best thing is engagement because part of the reason why the authoritarian system is there is because of the, the the maximum pressure that's been put on them economically by by the united states over decades uh so biden's not doing that though because of course the the concern is domestic he doesn't want to appear weak or, or soft and you know on, on the communism or whatever um, so that's happening. I mean, the, you know, the war on terror is still going on unabated, despite the fact that Afghanistan is, is, is finished. Um, that, and it doesn't look like that's really going to go away or get any smaller. Um, I guess one bright spot is that Biden has bombed less, um, substantially less than Trump did. So that's, you know, I mean, it's it's a very small consolation. And it, it's telling that, that that and the Afghanistan withdrawal are kind of the only two bright spots. Um, the Iran deal, I don't know if we mentioned, but... Uh, the administration has really, if, if a deal ends up happening, it'll be despite the Biden administration, not because of, because they've taken a very <laughs> yeah. uncompromising and, and frankly, just absurd line on it, where the US broke the deal, they imposed sanctions on Iran for no reason, and then now they refuse to take the sanctions off and demand that Iran be the first to, to make concessions, concessions, which is... Uh, you know, I mean, that's the, it's the behavior of a bully, of course. Um, another thing that that maybe has gotten less attention, uh, Biden has refused to reverse uh, Trump's recognition of the uh, of, of Morocco's annexation of Western Sahara. Um, that that, that long-standing U.S. policy was that it wasn't recognized because it was an illegal annexation. Um, Trump recognized that Biden has has refused to reverse it. Uh, something that that even John Bolton. 
<laughs> of all people wrote was a was a bad idea that that it was the wrong thing to do. So you know, consider the absurdity here that the uh, the U.S. is supposedly uh, supposed to go to war or at least send just hundreds of millions of dollars worth of weapons to Ukraine in the interests of territorial uh, uh, sovereignty and, and and international norms and all that all that stuff. Meanwhile, it's still causing all these humanitarian catastrophes. It's stealing a government's a foreign government's foreign reserves, and it's also recognizing an annex an illegal annexation. Um, I mean, which, which, again, if people knew about this, if people were told about this in, in, in press reporting, um, maybe there will be more outrage about this, and maybe there will be a little bit of a different attitude towards the Ukraine issue, but they're not being told about it. And so people just think, oh, well, you know, our government is the good guys, and the, the Russian one are naturally the bad guys every single time, and that's all there is to it. You know, it's it's interesting you see all that because I was just in Cuba, which was a really cool experience just to get to go there. Mm. But by the way, I had to go on a journalist visa because it's actually illegal for Americans to go to Cuba because of the American side. And that was because of the, the restrictions that Trump's, Trump placed on Cuba. He added mm. 243 uh, new sanctions against Cuba in addition to undoing all the normalization efforts that happened under Obama. He also added Cuba to the state sponsor of terrorism list. Uh, and he like tightened the noose, if you will, during the pandemic uh, on this little little island nation. And Biden actually campaigned much like he did about the Iran nuclear deal going back to it. He campaigned on undoing Trump's destructive policies on Cuba. And since coming into office, he has done the opposite. He's actually taken an even harder line. And that's according to the New York Times, by the way, the New York Times framed Joe Biden's policy towards Cuba as a harder line than Donald Trump's, which is, I mean, Donald Trump's line was pretty freaking hard. I mean, Marco Rubio and John Bolton were in charge of his Cuba policy. So anyways, all that said, I mean, when you go country or kind of country or region by region, it's either it stayed the same or got worse. <laughs> and it's pretty incredible. It really is incredible just to go like to hear you talk about the different parts of the world and that's just more of a comment than a question. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, no, it's it's it really is depressing because what is the alternative at this point? It's you know likely either Trump or someone, some Republican wins in twenty twenty four, and then they continue all of this stuff. There's absolutely no or or, or go harder or go even harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and then you know you have to wait at least four years uh, for for someone else to come in, and then when they come in. There's no guarantee that they won't just pull a Joe Biden and just basically, you know, out of out of fear of of looking too soft, continue to do whatever the last right wing administration did. And so, you know, that's it's it's incredibly dangerous. You know, this is one of the things that that with a rising China, as bad as a uh, as a, a new Cold War would be, and as foolish, I think, uh, completely misplaced priorities by the the foreign policy establishments. In the West, there um, at least having some sort of uh, uh, power that maybe balances things out in the world that forces the United States to Washington rather to to act in a more kind of reasoned and moderate way uh, to 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 be a little less reckless might be a good thing because you know you, if you mm -hmm. if you want to win a a new Cold War you got to have allies you can't just uh, you can't just decide to just bully every single person mm -hmm. because suddenly they have this other um power that they can go to the, the, to to get the help they need um i don't know if that's going to happen that also could be a bigger disaster well i think this is why this is why the u.s is so terrified of a rising china or a rising russia or a rising both of china and russia because then it gives these countries like venezuela cuba iran syria all these countries that it's like sanctioning and bullying an alternative that they can turn to uh that can actually get them out of the worst of the sanctions which is actually what's happening to some degree uh, but on that note, I want there to be time to talk about, unless you had any more questions related to foreign policy, Kevin, I, I don't mean to. Well, I was just going to make a quick point here in general, of, and, and then you can, you can get in with your question, but uh, it's just worth pointing out that even when we talk about the corruption of foreign policy, that generally speaking, any kind of oversight that happens to break out is also miserably corrupted as well. I mean, we've seen countless stories over the last year uh, from people looking at the reviews that the Pentagon does of drone strikes or airstrikes in general and civilian deaths and how nobody gets punished 
You even have Air Force lawyers who are blowing the whistle and saying that war crimes were committed and there needs to be an investigation and then they get suppressed. And then now, um, in the last uh, 24 hours here, we're recording this on February 11th, we've got this revelation of a CIA program that is extra legal, um, secretive, and collecting Americans' data, uh, even though the CIA is not allowed to engage in domestic spying of Americans. Um, it's supposed to be for foreign intelligence. We find that the analysts that are doing this work don't even have to log a foreign intelligence justification when collecting this data. And, you know, essentially, uh, the person who is running the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, who was promoted, was the Deputy Director of CIA. And she played a key role in making sure that nobody got punished when the CIA hacked into Senate computers while the Senate was putting together their torture report. And so, because there's no discipline, there's no consequences, nobody gets fired, nobody ends up having to change their careers. Everything is just so miserably corrupted. So even when you hear Joe Biden's administration talk about things they're doing to reform and alter what they acknowledge to be corrupt, it doesn't matter because nothing is different. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, with, with both that and, and the foreign policy stuff we've discussed, uh, I, I really think most ordinary Americans uh, are actually far more reasonable on, on foreign policy and national security than, than the people, you know, the, the elite or whatever you, word you want to use, the, the, the people in power. And I think that the issue is that people don't know that that a lot of this stuff is happening. I think people will be outraged um, about a lot of what is going on in their names and, and a lot of what's going on basically being used against them, that, that CIO program uh, being kind of an operative example. I, I hope that there will be enough outrage about this, that we would see something like a... Um, a, a church committee, you know, uh, similar to the 1970s one, but a new one for today that really looks at what, okay, what is the vast shadowy national security apparatus uh, in Washington actually doing? What what has it been doing for the past decades? What kind of powers does it have? Because at this point, you know, we know what we know. Uh, we know, and, and we only know that because of the, 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 the bravery of whistleblowers um, like Edward Snowden, like Chelsea Manning, like others who have kind of uh, allowed us to peer a little bit at this massive um, secret government uh, that exists within <laughs> ostensibly the, the democratic government uh, of the United States. But we don't really know the full extent. I mean, we didn't know about the CIA program until yesterday. And God knows what else we don't know. We you know, Now we look back on the 60s and 70s and the 50s and everything. And we say, oh, yeah, yeah, we know that uh, there was all this spying going on. We know that that uh, that, that, that uh, law enforcement and, and intelligence was was kind of basically targeting americans and they were trying to disrupt uh activist organizing and they were trying to you know uh, uh, undermine and even you know, murder and, and discredit a whole bunch of social movements and, and various groups we know that but the thing is we, we we did not know that until it was revealed through uh some reporting but then also this massive congressional investigation into it um there, there's such a a a it's, it's a massive iceberg basically of, of the things that we that we see and then what we don't know and and i really wonder what else would come out if we actually did something like the church committee again what else uh what other outrages we might find where this huge national security state that exists ostensibly to to go after foreign enemies has actually been uh working against the very american people who it's meant to defend um you know Rank speculation on my part, but but I think it's a fair thing to ask. Well, you know what's crazy about that too is like we actually have agencies that target Americans domestically. It's a, it's yeah. kind of like why does the CIA? I mean, it's so messed up, and that's not okay. But the fact that on top of that, you've also got the CIA doing it, like you already have an avenue to do it like legally. Why are you going out of your way to do it this way? It just shows that there's really no barriers anymore to so many of the, you know, rules that we supposedly have in place, or at least like sort of, you know, lines that we have in place. Like, no, you go after people in other countries and we do it here. It's like that doesn't even exist anymore. It's amazing. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the, the thing is, there's this Cold War uh, national security infrastructure that was created, you know, over the over the decades of the Cold War, and then the Cold War ended, and then all of those just stayed there. Nothing, nothing changed because I think for a variety of reasons. I think because of uh, Washington thought, okay, now we can, you know, there's there's no other power balancing us in the world. Now we can do whatever we want. Secondly, also of course the influence of, of arms manufacturers and defense contractors, of course. Um, but then also, so you've got that structure, and then you've also got the new uh, war and terror infrastructure, uh, which overlaps with some of that Cold War stuff um, that was made after 2000. And so it's sort of just these, these uh, this constant uh, uh, massive national security apparatus just gets added onto and added onto and built onto, and it's just you know money and personnel gets thrown into it. Doesn't matter if it's effective or not. It's it, there's never enough money that can go. Uh, in, into this project, and then what we end up with is a whole bunch of agencies working at cross purposes, or yeah. just without that much to do. And they go, well, you know what? Why don't we, you know, hey, let's let's expand what we're doing. And and you know, the CIA goes, hey, why don't we do drone strikes overseas? And and you know, the maybe the NSA goes, why don't we spy on Americans as well? Um, and, and I mean, it's it's a natural outcome of what's going to happen when you just create this massive unaccountable bureaucracy that that has no accountability just works in the shadows yeah and i mean on that note i really do want to make sure we have time for a couple things that i'd like to get to so if it's okay with the both of you Go i'm wondering it. if we can i wonder if we can if we can shift to a bit of a more maybe sensitive topic uh at least sensitive among some people we know um I think that there's a lot to be said, and I know this isn't something you've focused on so much, but you have written about COVID and like what our approach to it should be. And I do see a lot of fractures having taken place in the last, you know, half a year to a year in certain segments of the left in particular over the issue of COVID that I think has been somewhat revealing. And this is just my opinion. You guys can agree or disagree, though I know where Kevin stands on this, but Franco, you can agree or disagree. But I think it's been revealing in the sense of how much of a libertarian streak really exists among Americans across the political spectrum to different to varying degrees. And that includes people who consider themselves to be on the left uh, to the point where there's this like growing argument over basic public health measures being authoritarian and whether mm. we should be okay with them or not. And a lot of antagonism toward, towards it. And a lot of this has kind of like, has, has, you know, seeped into the into the conversation about the Canadian protest, trucker protest, uh, that's quite right wing and very, mm. I mean, again, in my opinion, looks like a sort of astroturfed Tea Party 2.0 kind of situation that we see taking place. But there are people, at least some really loud voices on the internet who consider themselves left, who are just like finger wagging and saying, you're not a left if, if you don't support these working class protests, which I think is like a really silly and misleading framing of what's happening in Canada right now. But I'm just curious your thoughts about what I just talked about. And I know it's like a difficult topic because people get really mean and angry uh, about this issue. But I thought for, for a few months, I was like, it'll go away, but it's not going away. And we see it kind of the, 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 you know, we see it growing, the sort of divide between people who consider themselves to be on the left over the issue of COVID and what the leftist position mm. should be. I, unfortunately, I think the pandemic has been filtered through the, the U.S. culture war that exists. And that, that's been deliberate, of course. There are, there are specific, uh, you know, entities and, and groups and everything that, that want to channel everything into this culture war because it... Of course, when when it becomes a matter of kind of self-identification and and, uh, and not a matter of what's good policy, what's good life-saving policy, then uh, you know you're not going to get any sort of rational debate about it. Um, you know, I, I think that the reason why there's been this split is because I, of the uniquely bad um, uh, pandemic response in the United States, first under Trump and, and now under Biden. Um, you know, I, for instance, I'm, I'm from New Zealand. I spent uh, a, a bit of time back home last year. Um, last year? Yes, last year. Um, so I, I've gone to kind of see both the US and the New Zealand response and, and you know, and I've been able to kind of look at it. And, and look, the New Zealand response was, and I don't think it's really possible to do this with the new infectious variants, but, but for the first while was we're going to do a, a very strict short-term stay-at-home order 
um, until the virus, until community spread of the virus is completely gone. And then everyone basically goes back to living as normal. So when, when I went back home for a few months back in, in 2021, um, after being in the United States for some time, I, I found actually I had a far more freedom in New Zealand, uh, you know, which had taken these kind of authoritarian measures. Um, but in reality was, I mean, you know, I, I wasn't wearing a, a mask. Uh, I was indoors. I was, I was, uh, you know, going to bars and restaurants and all this kind of stuff, all the normal, normal life stuff that, that people missed. Without um, COVID. Without yeah, without COVID. COVID. Yeah. And, and there was the occasional lockdown, you know, even when I was there. So, you know, that would last maybe a few days to a week um, uh, because because there would be a community outbreak and they wanted to stamp it out. And then when that was done, you know, it wasn't pleasant. I don't think anyone enjoys locking down at home. Um, but then when it was done, it was just back to normal. Um, now, in the United States, what's happened is because there was never really a concerted lockdown, stay at home order, whatever, whatever parlance you want to use, um what's ended up happening and and not just that but a whole bunch of other just mistakes around dealing with the pandemic i think what's happened in the united states is people have been on a kind of never-ending series of kind of voluntary lockdowns if you don't care about the virus if you think that it's not real if you think it's like the flu and okay you've just been living your life as normal and and maybe that's worked out for you for some other people that hasn't because they've seen their grandparents and their you know family members and, and wives and husbands die um but okay uh if 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 you're one of the, the people who hasn't then everything seemed normal if you're one of the people who are worried um and who have you know very good reason to worry whether you're an elderly person or you have some sort of immune condition or any other kind of comorbidity you've had to to put yourself on lockdown and, and place restrictions on yourself um or the government your, your local and state government has um and that's kind of just continued on and off for years now. And so people are very frustrated and angry, particularly with the school closures. And what that's kind of, I think, uh, uh, resulted in, or what it's been kind of channeled into, because obviously there's a, a wide variety of powerful interests that want everything to just be opened up again and say, screw it to all the public health uh, measures, is that there's this real, uh, I don't know if it's a majority, but it's a very vocal, maybe, minority or large minority or plurality of people who are just like i'm done with this i want to go back to normal um and 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 you know uh and there's also some people who just were feeling that way from the beginning um now i should also say that that what's kind of absurd about this whole situation again is that uh i mean there are aren't that many restrictions in the united states no Um, so i don't really see what people are arguing against i mean like i live in chicago i I, I guess I put on a mask for five seconds when I go into a restaurant or a, a cafe or something and I take it off. Yeah. Um, I guess the only thing is that I, I show a vaccine, my, my vaccine pass when I go in, um, which which I will say, you know, on the, on the libertarian side of things, I completely sympathize with people who are concerned about the vaccine mandates. I, I get it. I, I, I think that, that reasonable people can have disagreements about this because it is kind of an extreme measure to take to coerce people into getting a vaccine. It's also, I just want to throw in, it's also like, it sounds like a good idea to some degree, but it's also not clear it would work. That's the other thing too. And I think if if anything's going to be debated about a vaccine mandate, it should be, is it actually going to work? But anyways. Well, yeah, I mean, but I was going to say, you know, I think that in this case, uh, if you look at the pandemic, it was a once in a century event. If you look at how many people it's killed already and the disruption it's caused, I think a vaccine mandate makes sense. You know, for instance, the, the thing that I kind of uh, had argued for before Biden did his mandate was, you know, I thought it made sense to do it for airports um, yeah. because that's mm-hmm. where a lot of spread happens. And, you know, and uh, it, it also means that some of these people who are, who are resisting vaccines, not because they can't get it, but because they're just ideologically against it um so they would be might be forced to do it because they'll go well crap i can't i can't fly to on you know florida on vacation or whatever the hell um so i i think yeah reasonable people can disagree i do think that that uh we have to i think in the short term just adjust some of these more absolutist well, principles it's also it's also just real quick too like even if they did a vaccine mandate in the u.s you can literally like fake a vaccine card like they don't even, <laughs> right. it's like this flimsy cardboard piece of paper it's insane it's actually <laughs> like completely ridiculous that anybody's like oh my god 
they're like being too authoritarian like when all these people are just getting fake ones which is i think a real big problem but anyway yeah no no i mean total, i mean i i know people who know people who who have just yeah done yeah it's, it's a bit of an awkward situation it's kind of like do it wait hold on do uh, i say something but even yeah, if i did yeah. like to who because there's not like a vaccine card police because there's literally no actual restriction exactly like yeah. it's just yeah anyway. i mean you know we, we've all seen that barry weiss clip on on bill maher which was one of the most just laughable things it's people at a table i'm over unmasked. it i'm so over it i'm yeah. over it i'm and over it there's a massive crowd of people just off screen clapping and whooping and it's like yeah. what restrictions are you talking about you are in a studio right now completely yeah, as normal <laughs> And there's a pandemic raging and everyone's getting it. But specifically with the left, like what I've noticed is I think that there is, um, and I, the left is such an umbrella term. It's not really a fair term. Cause like, what does that really mean in the U S but people who consider themselves left who are like some of the loudest voices on the internet, which I know doesn't always equal like the most important people, but just this whole, like, Oh, like, like antagonism towards state intervention for public health. Like, yeah, I'm against like war on terror policies. I'm against mass surveillance. I am not against public health measures being enforced. Like those are two very different things. And there seems to be like a conflating of those things taking place. That's like, maybe libertarians, not even the entirely right word. There's it's like an anarchist tendency to it. I'm not saying those things are entirely bad, but when it comes to public health, like I want a strong state that's centralized that can enforce public health measures so that people don't die. so a million people don't die of something preventable yeah like yeah i mean let's let's put aside the stay-at-home order because i at this point i, I do think that the political will for this is just completely gone. gone and it just, it's just not gonna exist, happen yeah okay yeah okay but if we if we just take the u.s response on kind of the the i guess the trump biden um standard which is just vaccines 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 and and kind of using personal responsibility and whatever the government can do in, in combination to basically protect yourself and and, and protect people around you and spread uh, and, and and mitigate the spread okay there's tons of things that the u.s government could do that it is not a stay-at-home order that the biden administration has not done and you know the the, the things that i think maybe are most most easily come to mind other things that we saw over December, January, where the the <laughs> Jen Psaki, the press secretary, literally laughed at the idea of sending uh, <laughs> um, tests uh, to people, to, to American households, something that was completely routine in other countries. And something that the U.S. government, with all the the massive sprawling bureaucracy of, of the U.S. state and the powers of the presidency, could easily do. Um, not just tests, but masks. That was another thing that the Biden administration reportedly, according to Politico, they were worried that if they start sending out masks, then people are going to um, not uh, have as much of an appetite for the vaccine, uh, which is completely ridiculous. But it shows you the, the really, I think, silly mindset among the people in the administration who are running the, the pandemic response. Who, by the way, it is being headed by a, a former Bain Capital guy, yeah. I mean, which, which tells you everything. Sounds so there's so, so much... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. And I mean, uh, you know, I, I uh, wrote about in that reflection piece about this um, GAO report that looked at the uh, use of the Defense Production Act. I don't know if you guys remember the Defense Production yeah. Act. Yeah. That was the thing that Biden um, hilariously, uh, that was the only thing really he attacked Trump on with the pandemic. And then he rolled it out like a few minutes after Trump announced he was finally invoking the Defense Production Act. Um, but okay, so Biden's whole thing was the DPA is not being invoked. The, 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 the uh, Trump government is not doing enough to, to basically protect people. What uh, the GAO report found was that uh, the Biden administration had actually done way less uh, priority contracts um, for uh, uh, masks and, and other PPE than Trump had. And they'd also done less... And in fact, they actually, there was a long stretch of months where they didn't do any of it. They didn't order wow. any priority contracts. Uh, they also, the Biden administration did less like diagnostics, uh, uh, priority contracts. So, you know, for testing and that kind of thing. So the Trump administration, which was an absolute disaster, actually used the, the, the powers of the federal government in some ways more um, than Biden <laughs> did for this pandemic, which is shocking to, to, to think about. But yeah. Yeah, I think it just shows that Sorry, I just wanted to make a like just to make a point to off of what you said. And I think it shows that 
as much criticism as Trump got, which he deserved for how he handled the pandemic, a lot of that handling had to do with the U.S. government's res response plan from the get-go, that no matter who was in charge, there was very little that was going to be done to, per to mitigate the worst outcomes of a pandemic because of just how disastrously like decentralized and chaotic the U.S. government is. But, but go ahead, Kevin. Well, if I could just squeeze in one question here and then we'll get you out of here, Branko. I would like to ask for your opinion because you did write a piece about uh, the, I don't know if I want to call it a scandal. We'll say the the kerfuffle over whether Spotify is, is giving too much breath and bandwidth to uh, Joe Rogan in this podcast on and the way that musicians like Neil Young were pulling their music and you, you know, you looked at the response to it and we don't have time to get into all the issues and they've all really been litigated at this point, but there is one question that I haven't ha heard people consider. And I think we're a good group of people to just at least start the conversation around this question. Cause I don't think people are talking about it enough. What do you think Branko or have you thought about what's going to happen with the efforts by let's say Spotify, Twitter, Facebook, all these companies to remove these accounts, remove this content, say that they're going to start deleting episodes and primarily target it because they are stamping out right-wing conversations, right-wing politics. And then as a result, businesses and capitalists are going to respond by creating their own parallel ecosystem of social media uh, we're seeing Rumble video as a place that has some left voices, but it's really going to be an outpost for right-wingers to go. We have a presence on this platform called Rockfin, but there's a lot of right-wingers that are there because they can get their stuff without being filtered by YouTube. And you know, there's a, there's a, there's a part of me that wonders what it's going to be like if all of this that was there for us to see right in front of our faces gets pushed into this parallel universe. And to some degree, there has always been a kind of parallel conservative echo media chamber that has been very vibrant and more effective at worming, worming its way into politics than the progressives and uh, the, the fractured left. But still, it feels like it's gonna get worse. Like there's going to be things that pop up in our culture, become part of that culture war, that we're not gonna have any idea about until it's too late because it has gained traction among the population simply because we're seeing companies push it underground. I, I think the whole thing is a really profound misunderstanding of what is going on and what the, the, the issues with, with the current moment are. Um, you know, I think with, with what you're talking about there, um, I would remind people that the capital riot, right? So part of the reason why um, we knew that it was gonna happen and why, frankly, the, 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 you know, if they want to keep people from, from barging into Congress uh, and have the, the appropriate security there, uh, the reason that they should have had that is because the warnings were out in the open. We could see it because it was being talked about out in the open. When you push things further out into, you know, uh, into whatever, it's, if it's Discord or WhatsApp or uh, a whole bunch of other, other platforms that are, are, are not public, um, it makes it a lot harder to detect this kind of stuff. Um, you know, so anyone who's horrified about January 6th, um, A, it was an entirely preventable incident in the first place. And then B, um, if you don't want it to happen again, well, it's not really good to, to push people to the, these far corners of the internet. Um, I, I think my other thought about this is that it's very, uh, it, it's not a good thing for the left um, to have, to institutionalize and to sort of normalize the idea of censoring things online. There's countless examples of already of, of uh, left-wing you know, journalists, broadcasters, whatever, who have been um, uh, activists as well, who have been silenced on social media, whether by mistake or whether because uh, the the censors who work for these tech companies, um, they have decided that they've been pressured to see certain kind of left-wing speech, so, such as that, you know, say defending Palestinian rights as kind of tantamount to hate speech or, or something, and they, and they push it out. Um, uh, and then, uh, so that's 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 one thing. It's it's not going to be good for the left. The left partly has its problems that it has now because of an open internet. Um, we're not a juggernaut in publishing and in, in print publishing or or anything like that. If you start to censor the internet, you're going to get rid of a bunch of left voices. 
you'll get rid of some some right-wing voices too but but those ideologies the the more right-wing and centrist ideologies they already have platforms um that don't rely on the internet that are very powerful and influential fox news you know uh, newspapers magazines that kind of thing um and i think the, the last thing i would say and, and the thing i wrote about with joe rogan is i just think the joe rogan thing is such a just distraction and waste of time yeah. the the reason that people are not getting vaccinated or they're ill-informed about vaccination I, i'm not saying that joe rogan doesn't play a role in that i'm sure there's some people who listen to it and go okay i'm going to do what joe does even though he tells me he's an idiot and I shouldn't listen to him and do it. Um, but the thing is, uh, the, the misinformation is not coming from Joe Rogan and there's far more influential and powerful and, and more trusted even uh, voices that have been that, 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 that have basically been giving out misinformation. One of which was Joe Biden on CNN back in last year. He went on CNN Town Hall and he said he told a kid, uh, kids rarely get coronavirus and they can't spread it to their parents both completely wrong, wrong then and wrong now. Um, think about how many millions of people that reached. Think about how, how much more influential it is for the president of the United States who's been recognized as kind of this pro-science voice to be saying something like that instead of a, 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 a you know, a, a MMA enthusiast slash stoner who tells you, I have no idea what I'm talking about. So, you yeah. know, I think I wish there was more focus on not so much even the misinformation, but what, why is it that people are listening to misinformation and trusting misinformation and not trusting public health experts? I think it's a much more uncomfortable discussion because you would find that people have, um, you know, genuinely good reasons why they've lost trust in some of these institutions. I mean, even the New York Times was publishing that Omicron was going to end the pandemic. Like, and, and right. even in that article, in that article, it was like one person from Europe was saying it was going to end the pandemic. And then everybody else was saying, no, it's not. Right. So it's like, it's like the entire like liberal media class and liberal politicians have actually decided whether they want to believe it or not, that they're okay with letting it rip too. They're pretending yep. they're not. They're pretending yeah, it, they're not. It's but. very easy, very convenient then to point to Joe Rogan and you say, that's the problem. If we just right. if we just get rid of this, then everything will be fine. And of course, it's not true. One thing I'll, I'll just say before we go, one thing that I just find endlessly kind of, uh, I don't know, darkly amusing. According to Politico, the, 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 uh, Joe Biden, the president, when it comes to the pandemic, he reads David Leonhardt of the New York Times. Now, look, I don't know where everyone who's watching this stands in the pandemic, but if you're someone who maybe has more of a view like the ones that we, we've expressed, uh, you and I, Rania, on this broadcast, you probably don't think much of Leonhardt's writing, which has tended to kind of play down the pandemic and, and you know, uh, you know uh, be selective with facts and figures and that kind of thing, all in the kind of movement of less restrictions and that kind of thing. Well, okay, so this guy, this New York Times writer, clearly has far more influence on public mm -hmm. policy than Joe Rogan does. Joe Biden is not sitting there listening to the Joe Rogan experience and going, oh, this is, he's making a lot of sense on this. He's listening yeah. to some liberal journalists. So, I mean, you know, are we going to censor the New York Times now? Because by this logic, surely we should, we should, you know, uh, shutter the paper and, and you know, send Leonhardt to, to, you know, work as a, I don't know, flipping burgers or something, uh, something that's <laughs> nothing far away from public health. I mean, I don't think anyone would say that because they would say that's a really threatening thing to, to speech and, and civil liberties. Um, and yet we don't have the same attitude for publishing on the Internet, even though. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's all exactly. this there's all this panic and we'll let you plug your site and tell everybody where to find your work. But I just have to work in quickly that the uh, panic that we've seen is so disingenuous when you see NBC News. Uh, bringing on Stephen F. Hayes, who made up this link between Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein that didn't exist. And they're all like fake news, fake news. And then uh, we're bringing on Jonah Goldberg to be a contributor to <laughs> CNN. And his book, Liberal Fascism, is just an exercise in pseudo history of the left, which I'm sure you could spend hours upon hours, do a whole limited podcast series on the myths and fables that were written in there about the mm. left, according to Jonah Goldberg, and this idea of liberal fascism. So, uh, so it's just it's it's absolutely bonkers that this is going on parallel to some discussion of misinformation. But in any case, uh, Brinko, where can people find your work, and how could they follow you? Yeah, uh, you know, Jacobin, uh, J-A-C-O-B-I-N, 
mag.com, Jacobin Magazine. Uh, that's where I, I mostly write. Uh, you can also hit me up on Twitter. Uh, uh, just look me up. There's not a lot of Branko Marcin teachers on, <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, not to be confused with Branko Milanovic, who is a, uh, a different guy. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that, that's probably the two places. It's find. okay. No, it's important you made that, that, that you clarified <laughs> that because there was a time when I was like confused because I was like, hey, I thought he worked I, with Jacobin. I mostly feel bad for him. That he, you know, I, I think he gets bombarded with things every now and then. That, like, but he's I got he's got pretty good politics too. He does. Oh yeah, yeah. No, totally. Yeah. I, I, I just don't, I have no idea what he thinks of me, but I I, I can only imagine he's kind of like, Jesus Christ. I'm not this guy. Please don't. Me. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in, and if uh, you'd like to support our show, um, I'll just put this link up here. It's Patreon.com/slash Unauthorized Disclosure. We're here just about every week having fine guests like Branko. And last week we had Eugene Perrier. So uh, until next week, we'll be back with another episode. <laughs>